everyone. This is Regina. Hi, horse lovers. This is Lynn. This week on the Horse Industry Podcast. So Gina and I are always looking for story ideas. And what is so amazing is that we stumble upon them. Or our best researcher, Regina's mother, finds us stories. We're going to talk today about the Budweiser Clydesdales. But before we start talking about the Budweiser Clydesdales, I have to tell you a story that's going to actually make you cry. And I might cry when I tell it because it is just so emotional. So there was an Amish Belgian mare, very heavy and full. And this story came off of Facebook. Mm -hmm. Very heavy and full. And she injured her artery on her hind leg. So basically, she was about bleeding out. So they called a local trucker who came to their farm and picked up this mare. And the story tells it that this is an immaculate Amish farm. Immaculate. So it's not coming from some place where it wasn't well kept for. It was well taken care of. It's coming from an immaculate farm injured. And so they are hiring somebody to haul this pregnant mare to the animal hospital. And this is in Missouri. So the story goes that when their rig pulls in, they're semi hauling this Belgian mare. Guess who pulls in? Budweiser. A Budweiser rig pulls in with a Clydesdale mare that stands next to the Belgian mare during the entire surgery. And they're doing blood, they're doing live blood transfusions to the Belgian mare from the Clydesdale. And I can't imagine how stories like that happen. I mean, how did. I didn't know Budweiser does like community. That's like a community service thing. The, you know, so Budweiser's based out of Missouri. And so I imagine they probably use that vet hospital. And mm-hmm. so the vet hospital just, I mean, thinking ahead and what they had coming to them, knew they were going to need a lot of blood. And so must be that's the connection. Yeah. It's so impressive. Well, in the photo that I saw too, it was like the hauler that brought in the Belgian mayor. It's a big, it's like a big, it's a white semi pulling a red trailer, stock mm-hmm. trailer. And next to it, right next to it, is the Budweiser rig. It, and it was goosebumps. It's yeah. so beautiful. Yeah. And so the last that we had heard, and we're going to assume that this is a very happy ending, but the last that we had seen as a as a Facebook update was that the mayor had come out of surgery and was all stitched up, and they were keeping her at the vet hospital for a few days. Um, they didn't want to haul her and have a chance of the stitches coming loose, and that that foal was still alive inside of her, and they were just waiting for her to have her baby. Yeah, it was a... It- a happy story. It's a happy story. It is emotional, happy oh, story. Yeah, but a happy story. And so Lynn and I were kind of like, and it was one of the, the stories that my mom had screenshotted and sent to us. And it was like, oh my gosh, you know, I know about the Budweiser Clydesdales, but I don't really know. I knew the commercial part of them, like the shiny bright carts and the fancy horses and the, you know, like the things that you would see at Bush Gardens or you'd see at a parade or something like that. But I didn't understand or know anything about the history of Budweiser and holy smokes, it'll drag you in. It's such oh, a great story. It is. It is. It's truly impressive. And The Budweiser Clydesdales first appeared in 1933, and they were given to the brewery CEO from his son, August Anheuser-Busch Jr. Now, I've seen a couple sources that have also said that the, the Clydesdales were a gift not only from August, but the other son, 
Adolphus. Yeah. So some of my information comes from RFD TV, Pam Minnick. And then I've got another source that I'll quote here in a minute. But so the sons, so when when Prohibition ended, and we're mm-hmm. going to talk a little bit about Prohibition and, yeah. and Budweiser's um, involvement in that. But so when Prohibition ended, they told Augustus Bush Sr. that they bought him a car. Oh, and he was kind of like, oh, a car, oh, great. great. Mm-hmm. And he walked out, and there was a team of six <gasps> horses pulling a beer wagon. Oh, my gosh. Right? And apparently, he was very emotional and so excited about that. Well, and I, that's funny that you say that, the emotional part, because supposedly he cried, and that's where the crying in your beer... Gina and I have tears in our eyes yes. right now. Our <laughs> eyes are shiny. Yes. That's where the crying in your beer phrase comes no from. No way. I did yeah. not know that. Yeah. Oh, I read that. I love that. Yeah. I can't remember what source I saw that in, but that's exactly where that came from. I love it. And so then they took the team, mm-hmm. and somehow they transported them to New York City, Mm -hmm. and they delivered beer to the mayor. Right, because he was really instrumental in the repeal of Prohibition. So yeah, we'll get to that in a second. So first, let's talk a little bit about Prohibition, all right? Yeah. So Prohibition, again, kind of like the Budweiser Clydesdales, I knew about Prohibition, but I didn't really know about Prohibition. So the 18th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution banned the manufacture, transportation, and sale of intoxicating liquors. Why? Because there was this movement, this wave of religious revivalism that swept the U.S. in the 20s, like the 1820s and 1830s, and it led a bunch of people to try to encourage abstinence, restraint, and it was led by a lot of women, you know? (laughs) I don't know why I'm laughing, but I I mean, all of my women friends wouldn't want- drink a lot of wine. Right. Like, why would you want to prohibit the drinking of wine? Right. And I think that comes from male suppression, probably back then. Probably. male suppression, they wouldn't let the women have wine. Well, and I guess that women back then, and obviously not all women, we have to qualify this, but- they had this this strong role in this temperance movement and where they saw alcohol as a destructive force in families and marriages. And all kidding aside, it can be a very destructive force. But I was surprised that women were actually back then kind of behind this mm-hmm. movement. And then also there's this anti-saloon league. I mean, this was a big deal back then. And a lot of people saw that saloon culture as corrupt and ungodly. So prohibition started on January 17th of 1920 with the passage of the Volstead Act. But despite the new legislation, believe it or not, Prohibition was difficult to enforce. Now, there were some people that predicted this and like, hey, this is never going to work out. Back before that, in Massachusetts, a town had banned the sale of alcohol in 1844, and an enterprising tavern owner took to charging patrons for seeing a striped pig. Okay, 
The drinks came free. So technically, he wasn't selling alcohol. He was just charging to see the striped pig. I love it. Right? Okay, so then also with Prohibition, the economic benefits didn't happen like they thought it would. They figured that rent would rise in neighborhoods that were, quote unquote, cleaned up. They figured that theaters would get more traffic because people were trying to figure out what to do if they couldn't drink. And that restaurants would have an upswing as well. Well, actually, restaurants kind of failed because they weren't selling alcohol. Plus, there was also, duh, a loss of jobs. I mean, people weren't working in breweries. They weren't driving the trucks. They weren't um, making barrels for alcohol. So there was just this huge loss of jobs. Oh, and so also there was this increase in the illegal production of liquor known as bootlegging. And you know where the term bootlegging comes from? I don't know. Oh. Did they hide it in their bootleg? Exactly. Their leg? Exactly. So bootlegging, and it wasn't just... During this time of prohibition, but I guess in history in general, any time that you hide something illegal in your boot, it's called bootlegging. So if you go to a movie theater and you want to take pictures of a movie before, you know how they do those illegal film things? If you put your your camera in your pants, they that's also called bootlegging. And then there's also this proliferation of speakeasies. Now, why do you think they call them speakeasies? I do not know. Okay. Well, I thought it was because if you drank alcohol, you, you speak easy. Right. That's what I thought. Oh, yeah. Okay. No, not true. The speakeasy term comes from, you go, dude, speakeasy, man. You got a whisper coming in here because it's illegal. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I love it. Okay, so also there's this rise in gang violence because of prohibition. One of the most famous people who benefited from prohibition was actually Al Capone. He earned a staggering $60 million from bootlegging and speakeasy operations. So by 1932, the country was in the Great Depression, right? And alcohol was, we were in prohibition, so that wasn't sold. So what did Franklin D. Roosevelt do? Well, he ran for president that year on a platform calling for the end of prohibition. He easily won over the incumbent President Herbert Hoover, and FDR's victory meant the end for prohibition, which is right before August and Adolphus brought the six-horse Clydesdale Hitch to their father who cried it in his beer. So one of the things that I read, the worst abusers during Prohibition was like was the Congress and the senators. Right. Like, <laughs> like they had they called him the green hat man, would come walk into the House of Representatives or walk into the, the Senate offices with a bag and he always wore a green hat and he was selling it to all of our congressmen and senators. Oh, and not only that, but so one of the legal exemptions to prohibition was that pharmacists could dispense whiskey by prescription prescription. And so they would do that for any number of ailments from anxiety to the flu, right? So because of that, bootleggers quickly became pharmacists. (laughs) (laughs) It was a perfect front for their trade. And as a result, the number of registered pharmacists in New York State tripled during Prohibition. Also, because Americans were allowed to obtain wine for religious purposes, Enrollment at church and synagogues saw a huge increase. (laughs) And also self-professed rabbis became prevalent, right? And then finally, like I said, you know, Al Capone came into power during that time too. So there was a lot of ancillary 
benefits and negatives to the prohibition time. Yeah. And so what the distilleries had to do, so Anheuser-Busch and these other distilleries had to do, was they had to find during that time another way to make an income. And so the ones that tried to do it legally, like Bush, Mm -hmm. they made pop, they sold other fountain drinks and things like that to try to make a living during prohibition to keep their doors open. Yeah. And I think too, that they also sold the ingredients, right? So that people could put those ingredients. I mean, they sold the ingredients separately with kind of a wink, wink. You can put those together at home. Like a brick of grapes that you drop in water that ferments and creates your own wine. Now, I'm going to say that probably wasn't very good. But on the other hand, I like my wine. And for 13 years, if I couldn't have any wine, I might I might drop that brick in some water and see what happens. Yeah. And so when Prohibition ended, obviously the Bush family and all the other families that were involved with alcohol probably were quite happy. Yeah. And so it talks about the Anheuser-Busch family that they saw the old man, the dad that received the hitch, saw a marketing opportunity. Like he looked at this and went, oh, look at this shiny rig and we're going to take it to New York City and we're going to take it to Washington, D.C. and see the president. What else can we do with this? And so that's kind of how the whole Budweiser Clydesdales got started. It is. And obviously, you know, Lynn and I are from a small town, football town. And so I understand the game of football. And so when we watch the Super Bowl, of course, I'm, I'm actually interested in the game. But Super Bowl in the Budweiser Clydesdales, it's a synonymous connection. Right. I mean, I can't wait to see every year the the commercial that's yeah. going to come. And, and there's been fabulous ones. I mean, the, the Clydesdales playing football. Oh, yeah. The donkey that wants to be a Clydesdale. Oh, I know. Like there's, and then there, the dog that wants to be a Dalmatian and ride on the wagon. And oh. there's just so many of them that just like... I make that whining noise like Gina every time you see one of those because they're so heartwarming. It tugs at your heartstrings. And you mentioned the Dalmatian. The Dalmatian joined the team about the 1950s. So Clydesdales today. Clydesdales today, I did not know this. They have very, very stringent requirements. They have to have a white blaze, a black mane and tail, which obviously makes them a bay, and have four white stocking feet. They have to be at least four years old. They have to weigh 1,800 pounds at minimum, and they have to be six foot tall to qualify. So I didn't, I mean, I guess I knew they all looked alike, but I didn't realize how particular Budweiser is about choosing them. Let me say, before we go on that, I want to talk a little bit about the Dalmatians, because like you said, in 1950, they added the Dalmatian to to the wagon, to the team. So the reason for adding Dalmatians, do you know? No, I don't. Okay, so Dalmatians were also, like back in the days when you had to fight fires, and they they pulled like these fire, the water tanks Mm -hmm. with a team of horses, Mm -hmm. and then the firemen would have to go out in these cities and fight the fire. They needed a dog to protect the wagon and the horses, and a Dalmatian is very protective. And so that's why you'll always see a Dalmatian with Budweiser Clydesdales, because they are very protective of that wagon and that team. And they look like friendly, happy dogs, but apparently um, back in the day when they were fighting fires, that that Dalmatian would keep anybody from messing with the horses or the wagon. Interesting. So there you go. I did not know that. 
Okay, so even today, expert groomers travel with on the road with the hitch. They travel at least 10 months out of the year. There's a team that oversees their diet. Each hitch horse will consume as much as 20 to 25 quarts of grain, 50 to 60 pounds of hay, and up to 30 gallons of water on a warm day. How expensive. Yeah, they travel with three semis, 10 horses. So the hitch consists of eight horses. They always bring a backup. Okay. And there's seven handlers and one dog that travel everywhere. And their hay and their feed is delivered to the site before they get there. Because they're traveling with so much equipment that Mm -hmm. the series I watched with Pam Minnick on RFD TV talked about how the feed was already there. Like when they got there, they pull up, there's their feed. So they don't have to haul that. Well, and I think all horse people know that changing feed on a horse is not a good idea. And Mm -hmm. so with all the traveling that I do, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. It makes sense. I mean, when we go to shows, we throw our hay on and we take our grain and so forth. So That makes perfect sense. The horses ride in trailers that have cameras mounted in there so that the drivers can keep an eye on them. They have air cushion suspension and thick rubber flooring in the trailers. And then they stop every night at a local stable so that the horses can rest. The team also travels, like Lynn said, with their hitch drivers. And these hitch drivers actually go through lengthy training. I didn't, I mean, I guess I didn't think of it, but it makes perfect sense. Because if you think about it, the driving, the driver is in charge of 12 tons of wagon and horses. And the driver himself or herself, the 40 pounds of lines that's held by the driver plus the tension creates a weight of more than 75 pounds on that driver at all times. That's building some strength in your arms. That's there. upper that's body pretty, workout. Yeah, that is okay, workout. each Clydesdale's harness weighs approximately 130 pounds. All of the Budweiser Clydesdales are given short names like Duke, Mark, Bud, and so on. I tried to look up to see what the existing, like the current Clydesdale horses' names or the Budweiser's, and I couldn't find it. Well, and there's three teams that travel around the country. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of Buds and Joes and Mikes <laughs> traveling probably. around. And team. I guess it's because the horses are so well-trained that they actually know what their own name is. But a Budweiser Clydesdale horse's shoe measures more than 20 inches from the front end and weighs about five pounds. So that's kind of the background on it. I mean, it's just fascinating. I can't imagine... Being involved with horses our whole lives, we know the dedication it takes just to get one horse in a Western pleasure class. It's hard to comprehend how they can get these monster-sized animals to do what they need to do. Okay, Gina, I googled training Budweiser Clydesdales, and I found a treasure trove of information that sucked me in for a couple hours. Oh. Like, it is amazing. So there's been a couple trainers involved with training these Budweiser Clydesdales for the Super Bowl commercials. Mm-hmm. One of them is Tommy Turby. Um, he, they used him in 2013. He had four weeks to train eight horses. But the one that really stuck with me, and I'm so impressed, I watched The Ride with Cord McCoy. It's a TV series. And I didn't even know that it, it's available anymore but i but google the ride with cord mccoy mm-hmm. and he goes to turtle ranch which is a 3000 acre ranch in wyoming so australian trainers robin and his wife kate wiltshire have been training budweiser clydesdales for 15 years for commercials 
I can't even imagine this, Regina. But so like the way that the program starts out is there's a field of 40 horses. And these aren't Clydesdale yet. They're just 40 horses out in this giant 3,000 acre is what it appears Mm -hmm. ranch. And this Robin rides in on a gray horse and he says, line up. (laughs) And these 40 horses, not a halter on them. They come to him and they go and they stand in a perfect line. A perfect line. Like this is 40 horses. So when you watch the Super Bowl commercial mm-hmm. where the horses play football, mm-hmm. like I always figured that that was some kind of trick photography. I thought it was CG. Is that what's called CG? I don't know what CG is, but it was some, <laughs> I assumed, what is CG? Well, I, that's that computer generated. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yes. yeah. I assumed it was something like that. Yeah. It's not. So this guy takes these Clydesdales and he, so what he does is he puts this board on the ground that you can't see uh-huh. in the, in the video or in the filming. He puts a board on this long board on the ground that each of the horses can stand their front feet on. So he teaches those Clydesdales to line up. And come and stand on that board. So they, and it, it's called liberty training. Liberty means free. Yeah. Like there's nothing on them. These Clydesdales are liberty trained to come stand on this board. And then he teaches them like where the one, the Clydesdale holds the football with its foot. Uh-huh. I mean, he trains them to do that. And so he trains that Clydesdale to lift it, what comes step up forward out of the line, put its, leg on that ball and then then they probably use some trick photography to mm-hmm. show the other Clydesdale kind of kick it away with its front foot uh-huh. but I thought that was amazing like these horses are really doing this and they add this snow a lot of this is done in front of a green screen mm-hmm. so they can add in all the view and everything behind it but then there was another one where the horses are playing the, the colts are playing with snowballs Mm-hmm. And what that is that they trained those young Clydesdales to play with basketballs. So they instead of snowballs, those are actually basketballs oh. that they would put their feet on and kick them or do whatever. And so that's kind of how that commercial was made with the basketballs. So they made the basketballs look like snowballs. Wow. But I mean, this guy is incredible and he loves these horses he's very kind very soft-spoken mm-hmm. what else like I've, I've, there's so much to share from there like there is one episode with the golden a gold no it's a labrador uh-huh. it's a blonde labrador uh-huh. i believe and so they went and bought this robin and his wife kate went and bought this dog as a puppy so that it could be around those clydesdales like through all of their training and so that they that puppy developed on a relationship with those horses and the horses got to know that puppy underfoot and that's how they trained that dog to be in the commercial i think it's like the puppy runs away oh yeah and then the, the barn help goes and meets the lady next door and they bring the pup back and then the next thing you know the horse runs away and goes to the puppy's house yes. and they're true friends that's how they did that one oh. and then there's another one where it shows like this big clydesdale that trots up and at the ranch, as they're training this horse, they have like these plastic barrels stacked on top of each other. Mm-hmm. And they train this big Clydesdale, Liberty, free, mm-hmm. to trot up to these barrels mm-hmm. and kind of bump into them. 
Mm-hmm. And so what you see in the Super Bowl commercial is that horse trots up to a tree, kind of scratches on it, and all the snow falls off the pine oh. tree onto the horse. But it is amazing. I mean, and I could have, and I did spend a lot of time there. <laughs> and then I actually told Kevin, I'm like, you have got to watch this. It's such an amazing behind the scenes story of what goes into training these amazing, beautiful Clydesdales to do those commercials. Mm-hmm. It's awesome. Well, and we all look forward to it every year. I mean, if there is, if there's one thing that I look forward to during Super Bowl, it's watching the Budweiser Clydesdale commercial. So yeah. it's kind of fun to hear how that's done. I had no idea. Again, I thought it was all totally CG. Yeah. Computer generated, but yes. it's clearly it's not. not. It's not. I mean, yes, when they add in the snow, the basketball, the yeah. snow, those things, but those horses are, I mean, they spend hours training them. And one of the articles that I, I read too, it talks about how the teams that travel, mm-hmm. that the horses that are in the commercials, that they don't. There rarely are those horses used on the teams because of that specific training that they had preparing mm-hmm. for the commercials sometimes gets them distracted if they <laughs> hear something as part of the team. Well, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And the two the two biggest, most powerful horses are the two horses that are right in front of the – they're the first horses on the hitch. Mm-hmm. They've got to be big. They've got to be strong. And they talked about one of the horses that he's just an overachiever. Like this one big, powerful horse, and they said his name, and I can't remember it. But I mean, like he he just wants to pull the wagon by himself. <laughs> like he loves his job so much, much that he just wants to pull the wagon himself. So the big, the biggest, strongest horses are attached to the wagon, and then the lighter ones, the more agile, because they've got more ground to cover as mm-hmm. they turn. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of their performances are they're sim- stimulating backing into a dock to unload beer, oh. and then like in in tight spaces. Yeah. So it's, they're so impressive. I mean, it's, and I think that's kind of goes along with how society has changed in that there used to be so many jobs for the draft horses and the Clydesdales Mm -hmm. and the Shires and Mm the, I don't know, what are some of the other ones? Pertrons. Pertrons. Belgians. Yeah. And so they pretty much kind of turned over the farm fields. Mm -hmm. And I had shared on Instagram, I went for a run and I was kind of going through a cornfield where early spring and half sticking out of the ground is this old giant draft shoe. Mm -hmm. So it came off of a draft horse. I mean, I don't know how long, I mean, how long has it been since draft horses turned over the fields in this area? A really long time. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I was probably a mile or two from home. I carried that draft horseshoe (laughs) all the way home and actually it's sitting out in my front yard. But, and now you think about it, these types of horses, they don't have to carry the beer. They don't have to, you know, pull the wagons to deliver product and and I worry about the future for big animals like that because they are really expensive to have and they're so beautiful and I'm glad that Budweiser has kept that that mystery and that magic and that beauty mm-hmm. of their Budweiser Clydesdales going for so long and they really seem to love them and embrace them and 
and focus on promoting them. Yeah, and there's a whole show industry based around hitches. Mm-hmm. I mean, we see it at our county fair. Mm-hmm. And in Michigan, prior to COVID, they had a huge show every year at Michigan State at the Pavilion for hitch horses. So, I mean, just like we have in Western Pleasure mm-hmm. Cutting, there's a whole group of people that are traveling and showing horses. Yeah, they love them. Hitch, yeah, hitch actually, our vet. Doc Fedor, he he raises draft horses, and he has had so many wonderful experiences with them. So I know you think that you load a lot of stuff up to go to a pleasure show. Oh. Can you imagine? I mean, it takes a semi, oh, or two to go to a to go to a show with your wagon and all of your stuff. So it's a lot of hard work, and credit to all those folks that are still doing that with these big, beautiful, giant horses. Yeah, and. The Amish, the Amish in our neighborhood are still working with big horses. Which kind of comes full circle back to the story how we got even started on this topic, which is that pregnant mare that needed Budweiser blood to save her and her baby. Let's, we should just cheers to that. Cheers to that. Have a bud. Yeah. So that's our story this week. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to spending more time with you and sharing stories of our industry. See you next week.